Hello and welcome to the second season of the Royal Children's Hospital podcast series, Life, Love and Loss, Caring for a Child Who is Dying, produced by the Victorian Paediatric Palliative Care Program and nationally funded by Palliative Care Australia as part of the National Action Plan Project. My name is Lena Keneva. I'm a journalist and facilitator of this series. This is the second season of a further six episodes which will continue to focus on the experience of families whose children have died from a life-limiting condition. Family members bravely share the joys and sorrows of their experience with the hope that their voices can support, inform and better prepare other families who may need to face similar challenges. This is episode three, walking alongside caring for adolescents at the end of their life. In this episode, we'll hear from two parents of young people who've died from a life-limiting illness. Many adolescents need the opportunity to be involved in their own care decisions, address unfinished business, voice their own wishes, have their hopes acknowledged and live full lives. The parents in this episode will reflect on their adolescent children who lived with the complexities of terminal illness. Today with me, I have two wonderful parents who are going to tell us about their teenagers. Ellie is the mother of Stephanie and Nathan. Nathan was diagnosed with an osteosarcoma in 2014 and underwent various treatments over the preceding years. Sadly, Nathan died at the age of 16 in 2018. Welcome, Ellie. Hi. Also with us in the studio is Kerry, the mother to Lauren and her older sister, Sophie. Lauren was diagnosed with a brain tumour in 2018 and sadly died two years later, age 17, in July 2020. Welcome, Kerry. Thank you. Today we're talking about those challenges of, of surviving the whole process of dealing with the illness, how your child, uh, your, your adolescent mm. child was coping. Tell us, Ellie, a little bit about Nathan. So Nathan was a wonderful kid, was never sick, never ill, very fun and loved to loved to be around adults a lot at a very young age. He seemed to get along with adults better than kids. So obviously when um, he was diagnosed at 12, it was quite a shock to all of us because we didn't even have a doctor. So it was very difficult. But Nathan was... Uh, very caring and wonderful young man. Ellie, what were the things that you noticed that started to go wrong and you thought something was wrong? Uh, Nothing really was wrong. Nathan would complain of pains in the leg, but we sort of put him down to growing pains. And it wasn't until one day he'd been riding his bike all weekend and Sunday came and he... He came home and he said, Mum, I've got a really sore leg. And I looked at his leg and it was completely swollen and I was like, wow, that's not normal for riding a bike. Still didn't think anything of it and went, mm, I think we need to get that checked. And so that's where it all sort of started. But prior to that, nothing. And was the diagnosis quick after that? How no, did that happen? it wasn't. So my husband at the time took him to the GP. I went to work that day. Like it was on a Monday. I went to work. Hubby took... Nathan to the GP and they obviously did some tests. I got a call to say uh, Nathan needs to go back and have a CT scan. Now obviously they must have realised there was something not quite right, didn't tell us. So I rang my husband and said look you're going to have to take Nathan back to get a CT scan. Then once I went back to the doctor he still didn't tell us what it was and he said, I think you need to go and see a, a bone surgeon in Dandenong Hospital. So we went there and that was just a three-week journey of still not finding out what was wrong. So after three weeks in Dandenong Hospital, we had bone scans, x-rays, CT scans, still no diagnosis. And then they basically said, look, we can't give you anything. It's time for you to go to the Royal Children's. We've booked you into the Royal Children's Hospital and go from there. From there, we came in here, had a, a biopsy, which still was inconclusive. So this is now after three weeks. 
and then they we had to have another surgery and that was bone biopsy. And only then could they sort of say, look, this is what it is. So it was about a month from the time we went to the GP to the time it, we were actually told it was osteosarcoma. What was Nathan saying to you at these times when, when he was having all the tests and when he got the diagnosis? He was too young and didn't even understand. He'd never been sick, so cancer's a journey that nobody really understands until you're there. And it was a process of him learning and all of us learning what that really meant. Mm. Kerry, tell us about Lauren. Lauren was an incredible daughter, child. She was very out there. She loved dancing. She loved dancing with her sister. Yeah, she was just a great kid a great kid. She was lucky enough to travel to Paris before she got sick. That was just an incredible thing for her and that she really appreciated, especially because she was diagnosed with brain cancer once she got home from her her trip to Paris. Kerry, what were some of the first signs for you that there was a problem? So before Lauren went to Paris, she'd had the odd headache. She'd had a bit of tingling in her fingers, but nothing that was ongoing. It was just the odd headache. It wasn't anything serious. She wasn't having migraines. When she got to Paris after her flight, she got very sick over there and the teachers had to call a doctor in and she'd been vomiting and you know, and we just thought, well, maybe it was something she'd eaten on the flight, didn't put two and two together with the other things. Anyway, she got better and she continued her journey in Paris. She got home very sleepy and we, we just put it down to jet lag because she'd never, she'd been to Bali, but she'd never been on a big overseas trip before. So very sleepy the same. I went to work one Saturday and her stepfather was home and she was, she'd rung me at work and said, I can't walk. I can't stand. And it came out of nowhere. And I'm like, right, I'm coming home. We took her straight to the Geelong hospital. They had hydrated her. She basically walked out of the hospital after being, you know, hydrated And then um, they said, look, that was on a sad day. They said, come back Monday for an MRI. So we came back to the hospital on the Monday and they did the MRI and they brought us back into the emergency. They said the doctor would like to just go through the results. And the doctor came and said, you know, unfortunately, we found a tumour on her brain. We need to call an ambulance and, and get you straight to the Royal Children's Hospital So for us, it was all extremely quick. It was too quick to process. And for Lauren to get that, it was just her and me in the hospital. And, you know, we were just a mess to hear that there's a tumour. And so obviously the reaction is shock. Mm. What was she saying to you? There was just... Why? There was no there was no real words. There was just tears. Her dad lived in Canberra and my parents live in South Australia and I rang her dad straight away. We have a really great relationship and I rang him and I said, Look, this is what's happened. We're being rushed to the hospital. I think you need to get here. And then I rang my parents and said the same and I remember hanging up and I rang back and I said oh, maybe I'm jumping the gun. Maybe you don't need to come. Like, this happens to other people. It doesn't happen to us, you know. But they thankfully jumped on a flight and they got here the next morning at 8 o'clock in the morning where her dad got here. I reckon he got in at about 9 o'clock at night. So, yeah. But I, I think it was just, yeah, unbelievable thoughts. You, you just couldn't rationalise what was happening. Ellie, the issue now is the challenges, and we've talked about this in terms of, let's talk about challenges in terms of 
What was the next process for you and how did your family deal with it? How did you tell people and how uh, did Nathan deal with these issues? Nathan dealt with everything so well. I was beside myself. Obviously, when I heard the word cancer, I my legs went all, you know, funny and uh, wobbly and I could barely stand. Nathan sort of handled everything well and everything starts really quick. From the time you get diagnosis, it's like come into hospital, you've got all these tests that you have to do. Was Nathan asking you questions? Not at all. When did he start to ask some more difficult questions? Nathan never really asked. He trusted that I would tell him if he needed to know anything. He relied on me so much, especially as it progressed, that even when we'd have meetings, he would say to me, Mum, you deal with it and you just tell me what you need to tell me. I don't I don't need to be there or I don't want to know. You just tell me. So he just wanted simple points. He didn't want to hear all the medical jargon and everything else. He just wanted me to tell him, this is it. Kerry, what about Lauren? Did she ask questions as the diagnosis and the treatment plan unfolded? Yeah, Lauren was very open to hearing everything. Her doctor explained it all incredibly well to her, but then she would have her times where she'd want to back off. She was very understanding. She felt more relaxed than maybe me. Yeah, then I think as a mother and it's happening to your child, Mm. it's a harder thing to process. Yeah. And did you ask her about the treatment options? Was that a discussion you had? So she had her first round of chemo. She had an oral chemo and then we had to wait the six weeks and then have a second round of oral chemo. And that oral chemo did not go well. We were at home. She was bed bound. She was extremely sick. I was ringing the hospital all the time trying to work out what I was doing until they said, you know, they kept saying, bring her in any time. And then it just got too hard. I couldn't care for her. When we came into hospital and then we had a discussion about what we were going to do with this chemo. Were we going to go any further with the trying to keep going? The chemo wasn't giving her a good quality of life. So she chose not to go any further and we we followed her what her choice was. We allowed her because it was happening to her and we gave her that choice. And, and when we came into hospital that time, it was when she had a second surgery and they wanted to put a shunt in her head to drain the fluid. They actually gave her six weeks to live then. And thankfully she lived another 17 months after to be told your child's only got six weeks and you're sort of, the time's going and it's like, she's fighting. Definitely. Yeah. Ellie, as it got closer to the end for Nathan, did you see a change in his need to be informed in his decision-making? Did he ask you or did you ask him what did he want? So Nathan was diagnosed the first time and then he went into remission 18 months later. And then when he was re-diagnosed, we looked at each other and we both knew what this looked like the second time. And I don't know about him, but my heart dropped. And I knew that this was going to be a tough journey. The protocol for the first time for osteosarcoma is this is the way it is for nine months. You have this amount of treatments and so forth. The second time it's like we don't have anything specific, but we can sort of see how this goes. And I said to him, it's your decision, your choice. And he he did the first round. There were six rounds that, that that was going to happen, but it was one a day for five days. So that was really intense. And he was very sick for five days. It's not like um, the first time around where it was only one or two days and then it was just waiting to see what happens. Whereas this was five days and he said, Mum, I just don't think I can do it. And I said, you know what? But you, you, if you don't want those six rounds, I'm, I'm okay. And I think we got to maybe two rounds. I'm not sure, but we definitely didn't do the six rounds. 
tell us about the extended family and how you coped, Kerry. What, how did you involve the rest of the family? Did they want to be involved? Did your daughter want them to be involved? What happened in that wider family? She had moments where she didn't want them around, where it'd be like, right, I've just had enough of everyone coming in. And and that was fine. We gave her quiet times and that. But her, her dad and stepmum and stepsister had come over from Canberra through that 21 months that she was sick, they were always coming backwards and forwards and my parents were always over from South Australia. So we always had a tight bond. And But Lauren played the shots. If she wanted to have a party, we'd throw a party. We had a party for the dog's first birthday, you know, because she'd just come home from hospital and that's what she wanted to do. So we're like, yep, and we'd have all the family there. So... We let her call the shots and everyone was fine with that. So everyone accepted that she was calling the shots and and they weren't offering their own thoughts about it or conflict about you should be having more treatment, you should be doing something else. No, no. Lauren was a strong, strong strong-willed girl, strong-willed teenager. We'd all sit in with the doctors and they'd tell us what was happening. So we're all on the same page so, Which yeah. is a good place yeah, to be. Yeah, exactly. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that we didn't have any any conflict within the family. Ellie, how did you manage that whole family issue of, of communicating with family, everyone understanding what was happening, what the prognosis was likely to be? I think my family were all in denial. And so the first nine months when I was in hospital, I probably... I have two two older sisters. I'm the baby. And I barely saw either one of them in hospital. I did the nine-month journey on my own. I stayed with Nathan on my own for that time, and it really took its toll. My parents, who are Europeans and who are illiterate and don't speak the language well, although we've been here for 50 years, no one in our families had cancer. So it was, we were the first. And so it was a journey. And I think they were in denial the first time. When Nathan was diagnosed for the second time, I think everyone sort of went, oh, this is serious. This must be real now. So it was a really tough journey for me because I was alone and isolated. I felt very alone through my journey. Did you try explaining to family members the seriousness of what was going on? You don't have time. And you're not in the right place. Mentally, you're, you're in action mode, warrior mode. I've just got to get this done. I've got to do what I need to do. I've got to be strong. I've got to get through things. And my son relies on me. He knows that I can get things done. And so it was very much action, task orientated. And there was no time to go, hey, guys, I need you. I need your help. Help me. It was whoever was willing to put their hands up and go, it wasn't even, if someone would ask me, I couldn't even answer yes or no. I didn't have that capability. It was like, if you clean my house, fantastic. If you ask me whether I need my house cleaned, I can't give you an answer for that. So if you go and do it, do it. Great. And I think everyone was so afraid because I was so in control. Everyone said, you look fine, Ali. You you just know exactly what you're doing. You don't need any help. It's like, okay, great. And Stephanie, how was she coping? I think she was the same. So my husband wasn't Nathan's father and he would go to play golf and Steph would go out and do things and we'd be left alone, just Nathan and I. So they would live life. They'd go out, do whatever. And I think they were all in denial. And so we would have this life in hospital where we'd have our hospital family And then we'd have our family at home. But even that was a bit weird because they weren't really, they couldn't understand what we were going through. And But our hospital family could. So the crazy thing was we felt more at home in hospital than we did at home. Um, Because it would be more like five days in hospital, sometimes longer, and then two days at home. I found, I made a lot of friends in hospital, connected with a lot of mums. And that was really my family at the time, crazy as that sounds. And was Nathan perhaps sharing his experience with the Power Care team or obviously with you, but obviously people in the hospital? What was he talking to them about then? 
Nathan wasn't a talker, so he didn't talk to anyone. I tried to get him to see a psychologist a few times. She was great. He just wouldn't, didn't want to have a bar of it. He, he was a gamer, and so he would get lost in his gaming, and that's what Nathan would do. He would just game and not really pay too much attention to what was really going on around him. But there must have come a time when he really understood what was going to happen, that he wasn't going to survive. I think that when it really hit him, I believe Nathan felt that that wasn't going to happen. I th- I think we all did. You know, you, you live in this hope and this he's going to get through. When Nathan actually lost his legs, as, as in he was no longer able to walk because uh, it, it went into his spine, uh, the cancer went into his spine, and from that point onwards, so that was the last six months of his life, um, and I think that hit home for him because that lost, he lost his independence. And I remember when he could no longer walk, that made a huge difference for Nathan. I still don't think he thought it was the end because obviously it's still... He fought. So from the time we were told his palliative care till the time Nathan died was a year. And I think he just kept fighting right till the very end and didn't want to go. And didn't ask you about what was likely to happen? No, never. We lived every day as though it was life and we were going to live life and we were just living life, doing parties like his 16th birthday was went on for days a week, <laughs> like we had a party every day, a Friday, a Saturday, Sunday, and then we did it again on the on his day and he started getting very sick towards the, the birthday. So I asked him, do you still want to have your birthday? And he's like, yes. And they they said to us... I had to ring the hospital because he he was coughing up blood and it wasn't it wasn't good. So they said, look, he's going to have to come in on the Friday for some uh, intense um, radiation. And I said, Nady, you know, we're going in to get radiation and then you still want to have the party. And he's like, yes, mum, still want to do it. I said, okay. So we did that and he, it was pretty intense. Like there's no way he would have survived after that because that was pretty much going to give him cancer anyway. It was that intense. It was literally just to give him some extra time. And um, the 16th, he's like, yep, let's do this, Mum. So I've organised his friend to be the DJ. We've got all his friends there, close friends. And he said to me, so, Mum, I want to tell my friends. I don't want them to go to school next week and for the teachers to tell them that I'm dying. And I said okay, son, if you want to do that. And he's like, when do you want me to do it? And I said, just have a good time, enjoy yourself and maybe do it later on. So he did that. They danced, had a great time. There was a fire pit going outside and um, he's like, no, no, shall I do it at the when I'm doing my speeches? No, not that's not a good time. Do it towards the end where you've, you're ready to leave and then at least you've had a great night. So... The night was progressing and someone came over to me because I kept I didn't want to stay there. That was their time. And someone said, oh, the kids are crying. And I said, oh, so I came out and I watched Nathan going from one child at a time, just going and telling one of his friends. And then they'd start crying. And this is outside. I could see through the glass at the fire pit. Then he'd go and tell another. So he wasn't doing it as a group. He wanted to personalise it to each to each child. And I was just like blown away how he had that strength to be able to go to each student, I keep saying student, each child. And I just saw them crying, crying, and then they'd cuddle each other and... Um, and then I could see kids running outside from inside, going outside, going, what's going, what's going on? And he just, he was calm and calm as a cucumber, just telling each child that he was dying. And then parents are coming to pick their kids up uh-huh. and the kids are crying. 16 year birthday party. And they go, what's going on? Is everything okay? And I'm like, your child will tell you in the car on the way home. So it was, parents were coming going, oh my goodness, what's happening? Every yeah, child yeah, was yeah. crying. Do you know what he was saying to them? I do not. I have no idea what he said. But, I mean, obviously he was telling him he's not going to survive, but I don't know how he said it. Mm. I have no Very idea. Very brave of him. 
very brave because I only told one family member and I said, and you tell the rest. I can't do it. I could only do it once. And he was telling one at a time. So amazing kid. So like Nathan didn't want to talk about his funeral, didn't want to talk about what was going to happen. He just wanted to live. Did he have mates around that he chatted to about it? I heard him chat onto his, on online when he was gaming. Every now and again, I would hear him talking to people and I thought, that's really interesting. They're the only people he can talk to. His friends would come and visit, but even from understanding from his, his friends at school, he was the one that was helping friends out. Like they were always going through trouble and Nathan was the one that was helping them. No one ever... He never made a big deal. He never told anyone. He just, even when he was at school, even when he, through treatment and everything, cancer was not even spoken about at school with his friends. And do you think, Stephanie, your daughter had any conversations with him? I don't think so. So the last two weeks of Nathan's life, Stephanie, because Stephanie wasn't living with us, she came and she said, Mum, can I stay with him? Because we, towards the end of life, we had a room set up where he's, he was there and I was in, in there as well. And she said, can I sleep over? And I said, absolutely. You know, that was like, I get some time. Those times, I don't know what they spoke about. And I've never really asked that question, but I think that was their time together. I don't think Steph's ever sort of forgiven herself, which is unfortunate that the the day before Nathan actually passed, she was so tired that she said, Mum, can I just go home for one night's sleep? And I said, are you sure you want to do that? She said, Mum, just, I just need to rest and I'll come back tomorrow. And that was the night he passed away. So always plans of mice and men, huh? Yeah. Um, Kerry, can I ask you about um, Lauren's sister, Sophie? How did she cope with this? And what sort of conversations did you have with her? Sophie and Lauren have always been extremely close since babies. They'd always share the same bed. They'd always talk about everything. I'm sure, and I know they would have had lots of private conversations about what Lauren was going through, what was happening. Do you think Sophie, did she express any of her fears to you about what was going to happen to Lauren? What were her fears? Um, What were the challenges for her? Yeah, it's funny because some of these questions you're asking, I find it really hard to go back. I don't know if you block it a bit you because it's a bit painful. You try and... It's very painful. Yeah, yeah, so you try and block it. Sophie and Lauren were extremely close and the three of us were always very close. Did Lauren express her fears to you? In the later stages? Yeah, definitely. What were some of the so issues? From, so from when Lauren was diagnosed, she never really went back to school because after her first initial surgery, she had to learn to walk again because it affected her right side. And, and she did learn to walk again, but then as the brain cancer went further on, then she lost the ability to walk and she was fiercely independent and going to the shops she'd have to go into the wheelchair and I was like, what if someone from school Mm -hmm. sees me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we had to work out how we were going to manage that. We'd used to come into Melbourne to go to the shops, so we couldn't see anyone. But then she got a bit more accepting. Did she express any particular fear about getting closer to what you had all discussed as being a terminal illness? Not really. I think it was hard for all of us knowing when that time would come and what to look for. It was just very tough. So I don't think she knew. I think towards the end when her body started failing her, that was hard because she was more dependent and she didn't like that. And as a mother, it's like, I'm here to help you. I'll do whatever I can do to help you. But we spoke about her funeral, what her wishes were. I mean, you never expect to have the conversation with your child. Do you want to be buried or cremated? (laughs) And she was like, whatever you want. 
that was extremely hard. And as a mother, I always felt that I wanted to be cremated, but I couldn't, I couldn't do that to my child and, and each to their own. Like I, I don't judge anyone, but yeah, so it was those sorts of things, those real tough conversations. We spoke about what her bucket list was. What were some of her her wishes that she'd want to do over her life? And, you know, I said that we would let everyone know what her bucket list was so we could all fulfil it. So I've just come back last week from Africa because Lauren's bucket list was to go to Africa mm. on safari and see an mm. elephant. And I met a lady who very kindly took me to Africa and we went on safari and saw elephants and... While on safari, out of the group that I was with, out of the four trucks, my truck got a flat tyre right in front of the elephants. <laughs> and if Lauren didn't have anything to do with that, <laughs> so we just, while they're fixing the flat tyre, we're sitting watching these elephants all around us. It was so surreal. Everyone was in tears because everyone knew the story. So... I felt the bucket list and some of the things on her bucket list have just been having a selfie with quokkas <laughs> on Rottnest Island. So all our family and friends who go to Perth, they go to Rottnest Island just to have a selfie with a quokka for Lauren. So it's all those things that everyone's doing in her memory. You know. It sounds like she did think about it quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly, she did. And did she that did. surprise you or did that, in the moment of, of what was going to happen, didn't actually compute to you or did it surprise you that she had these bucket lists? No, it didn't surprise me because after she passed, I felt a bit of a horrible mother looking through her mobile phone but she had a list. She she would write a list for everything. And she had lists of baby names, her favourite dog breeds. She just had everything. And that, to know how deeply she thought, it didn't surprise me. Ellie, were there any surprises about Nathan, about how he was coping? Anything surprised you as mum? I don't think there was anything that surprised me because he was a very laid-back kid. And right through till the very end, my son never said, why me? Or what's going on? Why is this happening to me? Everything he took in his stride. One of the things he wanted to do was go on roller coaster rides. So we did a fundraiser and everyone just jumped on board. And we only had a very short space of time because Nathan's PET scan was on June the 20th. And this was in March. And we had to find something to do where he could go on roller coaster rides. So I decided, well, Australia, it has to be within Australia. I quickly organised flights and everything. We ended up doing a week in Cairns and then coming down and doing all the rides in Queensland. And he went on every single one of them. I videoed it all and I stayed off off them so I could just watch him and him and my husband went on all the rides. And that was just awesome to see. Um, he he enjoyed that a lot. But there was no surprises right through to the very end. Nathan, yeah, just took everything in his stride, really. Did you ask him the very hard questions about a funeral? I did, but he didn't want... He, he did the same thing. He said, Mum, I know you, you'll sort it out. <laughs> and And he did. He trusted me. He trusted me with everything. Nathan and I were very close. And he just knew that I would get things done and that I would have it exactly like he would want it. I had music going. The, the last song when he's going out, there's a song by Timmy Trumpet called The Freak. And we had this on at the funeral just bouncing and we were dancing as we were going out. And I just thought, I hope you're watching this and I hope you're dancing while we're doing this. Um, so it was, yeah, I, I did it. I hope I did him justice. Yeah. Kerry, can you tell us about your farewell? Our farewell was during COVID, so oh. we could only have 10 people at the funeral. It was bad enough to lose your daughter, but to have 10 people, that was so hard. But we had the um, the web link. The web link. So the thing that I appreciate from that is I can look back at it now 
So I, I will still just at times go back and it sort of gives me a bit of peace just to hear us talking about Lauren. And she helped you pick music. She she had no, any she didn't do any of that. No, but we had gone back on her music list and, and picked <laughs> um picked songs. So the, the same with walking out. We walked out to um Stevie Wonder, isn't she lovely? So our funeral director. He had his back to the the camera, but, you know, he was, like, bopping to it and it just made us all smile and, yeah. But with COVID, she was so sad about turning 17 in COVID, but what I had surprised her with, like you, you're making the most out of every special occasion. So I had a private Facebook group and I'd said, if if you want to, I'd organised it with a balloon company if you'd like to send a balloon because a balloon doesn't cost much and I thought oh yeah we'd we'd get a few balloons delivered we had 700 balloons delivered to our house (laughs) so our house was covered in helium balloons and that just gave her so much joy and she had a birthday cake with a little girl holding balloons on it and she said it was her best birthday ever and even though it was during COVID we some of her friends would drive past the house yelling and waving and you know so we made the most out of it yeah yeah did Lauren pass at home no so uh, a week before she had a fall at home because her body just wasn't working and I I was helping her to go to bed and her foot must have tripped and she fell down and we couldn't get her up off the ground. So we had to call the ambulance. They came, they said her heart rate was racing. We need to take her to hospital. So we were in hospital for about five days and um, I said, look, this isn't the place for her. Can we move her to the hospice? So we went to the hospice and they were beautiful. And being 17, they didn't have many children there. So we were in there the Saturday. And even I wasn't expecting her to pass sort of the Sunday night. But she's like, well, how long am I going to be here for? Will I still be able to? She wanted to do hydrotherapy. It was like, what am I doing? So the Sunday, her dad came, um, he was in town, he came and sat with her and because I was like, well, Monday's going to be busy because the, the doctors and nurses would come in to see her. I'd just race home to get stuff because, of, of course, like yourself, you're always there overnight with her. So I'd just got stuff, got, came back to the hospice. Her dad and I, she just sort of slept on and off that day. Um, we'd been talking and then she had a massive seizure and the doctors came and they said, look, we don't know what's going to happen. All the family came in to see her and then they left and, um, you know, she was sleeping on and off and she'd be like, mummy, I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry. And I'm like, it's okay, you're all right. And she'd been talking to the nurses and then half an hour later, She just took her last breath and quietly slipped away. Yeah. But for her to be talking that half an hour before, like the nurses didn't believe what had happened. They were in shock. Peaceful. So it was was extremely peaceful. Ellie, how are you feeling about telling us about (laughs) Nathan's last moments? So I'd I'd offered very special kids because very special kids had offered for us to stay there for last days. And because I was nurse and mum right through the whole journey and he was at home and because he'd lost his capabilities to walk, I was looking after him 24-7. But he said, no, mum, I want to stay home. And I said, okay, that's what we're going to do. And so right through till the very end, and I think... The fact that Steph, as I mentioned earlier on, she went home that night. Nathan just wanted us to, and it was. It was. I knew that it was coming. I kept asking the uh, palliative care nurse, "What does it look like?" Because you don't know. Don't. You have no idea. So it's like, what does getting closer to death look like? And I was asking these questions, and 
they kept saying that he was going to pass months and months before and it never happened. I knew, I actually knew when he was going and I knew this is his last week and I knew that these were the last days and I knew that that was his last night and I just laid with him on on the hospital bed at home and I just laid there and I listened to him breathing and um, we spoke and I said it's okay for him to leave and um, and I knew that it wasn't going to be um, easy but I was okay at the time. I was like it, he's just gone through so much and he just held on for so long and I, as much as I wanted him around, it was, it was letting go. It was time to let go. And I knew it was better for him. And so that night it was just, he just slowly, slowly, his breathing just slowed down. And I actually, my husband got up at 6.30 in the morning, Monday morning, and he came in and he kissed him goodbye and said, I'll see you after work. And so he was still alive. And then my daughter turned up at about 7.30, 8 o'clock. And I said, no, he's still here. And she looked and she said, mum, are you sure? And I looked across and I went, oh, no, it looks like he's gone. So I don't know in between that that hour when he actually left because I didn't sleep that night. I But it was middle of winter because June the 4th so it was cold so I kept sort of jumping back in bed and then I'd go over and then I'd put my hands and I'd kneel down and then I'd hold his hands and but it just kept getting cold every now and again so I'd jump back in bed and I'd look across and I'd try and look at his chest and I could see it if it moved but as he slowed down that it was so hard and I'd be trying to see he you know that and so I don't actually know when he passed but it was okay like when he did pass, I was okay with it. I think it was the days to come that were <laughs> worse. Reflecting back, what are some of the considerations you'd like to share with other parents who have adolescents, young people in the same position? Kerry? To listen to their child. We had the hospital bed brought into the house. Lauren was not going to sleep in that hospital bed. That was one thing. I said, you know, one afternoon she was having a nap. I said, you know, try it out. No, no, she was not. I don't think we ever had a conversation about where she'd be when she passed. So in a way I'm glad it was out of our hands. For me, I was glad to have the support of the, the hospice staff. Uh, until you're put into the position, it's, it's very difficult. It's difficult. All those conversations are extremely difficult to have. We listened to Lauren, what she wanted. She called the shots. I remember one of the conversations when we were told that she was going into palliative care. I remember saying to the doctor here, how do we tell Lauren that? How do you have that conversation that a teenager is going into palliative care. It's not a conversation I ever thought I'd have. And the doctor spoke to Lauren so beautifully. She put it into amazing terms. As an adult, you know what palliative care is. You expect old people go into palliative care. Young, young children don't go into palliative care. I think I am grateful for how they spoke to her. And Lauren had great relationships here with the staff, with the nurses, with the doctors. I'm so grateful for that. Your advice, Ellie? The things that are coming to my mind are, I know it's really difficult when you've got a child in palliative care, but to organise yourself beforehand about funeral directors, where they're going to be placed, like what you want to do. All those things get so much harder once they die mm. that you might think it's a hard thing to, to think of in advance but or even have some friends or family members that can help you along that journey beforehand to be able to give you – like if I 
had my way again, not that I want that, thank you very much, I would have organised uh, someone to to go, okay, bring me three funeral parlours and give me pricing and then let me just sort of pick one. Let not me be the one to have to look for it and the plot where that you're going to place them in. That's the hardest thing. It's like do all that while you still have some sense about you because they're the hardest things once the child passes. Mm. So if if there's anything, I would sort of prearrange things beforehand. Can I just yes. say I... I'd forgotten, but we had done that. We went mm. in. I can't remember. I can't remember how much earlier before she passed. I don't know if it was about eight months, but we had done that. We'd been to the funeral directors. I felt I needed to. I felt like I needed to tick something off the list. So I felt for us then by the time she passed, it was a bit easier mm-hmm. Being COVID, then that limited us how many people could go to the funeral directors. But I felt like we had ticked it off the list. So some of the decisions were easier. And then in that time, we changed our mind too of what we wanted to do. So so the planning, mm-hmm. as hard as it is, mm-hmm. is worth it. Absolutely. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. Ellie, thinking back on some of the advice to parents, mm-hmm. What's something else that you would tell parents that might help get through the sorrow? There's one thing that I really thought of, and I I only thought of it after Nathan had passed, is hearing his voice. It was, I really missed hearing his voice. So if there's anything that I could say, one would be tape as many things. Tape, I love you. Tape, happy Mother's Day, Merry Christmas, all those special days to be able to hear his voice on those days. I know it would be hard and you probably wouldn't want to hear him on those days, but that's one thing that I, yeah, I wanted to hear his voice again. Kerry, what about you? What are some of the things that you would wish you'd done? Yeah, I feel like I didn't have enough photos and videos but looking back, I probably did. But exactly, it's those, it's when fr- Lauren's friends post things and they'd share a video and a moment. One of Lauren's best friends had spent time in Canada when Lauren was first diagnosed. And I remember she shared a video of Lauren walking in her door going, hello, or I I can't remember the exact term, but it's those moments. And Lauren would always share with us when she was sick after being diagnosed that every day is a blessing. And I think it was a blessing. It was a blessing every, every moment we had Lauren. And I know now how important life is and having those moments. <laughs> so that phrase has become a household phrase it has, now. And, and while I was away, I had it tattooed on my arm. So it really is. It's a bit of a mantra to us. So, yeah, yeah. Every day is a blessing. Ellie, anything that Nathan said that you sticks in your head that he said? There's an ad and I've... I've I tried to find this ad and I can't find it. It was years ago. But something that Nathan used to say is, you've got that magic touch. But it was like that little kid, you got that magic touch. <laughs> and I used to love that. that you should so have special. recorded that. Yeah, I wish. I wish. I wish. Kerry, do you keep in touch with her friends? Obviously you're following them on Facebook but yeah. and, and other socials. But do you keep in touch or do they keep in touch with you? Yeah, we do. We do. And after Lauren was diagnosed, one of her best friends, her mum, we would have girls' night every second Wednesday. It would be a special night where it would be party night or Mexican night, but we still keep in contact. Lauren and her best friend, they loved One Direction Mm -hmm. back in the day. Lauren and her best friend went to... Before, just before she was diagnosed, went to see Harry Styles. So he's coming to concert. Oh, I think it's in January. We're all going together. Mm. 
just to to share those moments. Lovely. Mm. The same for you, Ellie. What's the? You still keep in contact with his friends? On Nathan's eighteenth birthday, I thought, okay, what do eighteen-year-olds do? So Nathan loved go karting and uh, laser tag. So I just invited all his friends, and we all did go karting and laser tag. And we had so much fun. It was just so much fun. On the day, I didn't know how I'd go, but once the kids came together, it was great. This year was Nathan's 21st. This was a real big one Mm. and a painful one. I struggled this year a lot, probably because I thought of this is his manhood, this is his direction, his life, what would it look like, where would he be going? So... His friends were all having 21sts and I was invited to them and it was really tough. I wanted to have a 21st with his friends. I didn't get there. I did have a 21st with our family. I managed that one. But it just got too hard. But the milestones are important Yes. Um, later on. And would you advise people to keep up those milestones? I think you do. I don't think you can. Your child is going to be with you for the rest of your life. Other people forget, but you don't. People feel that they can't talk to you about it because they don't want to upset you, but they don't realise you think about your child forever. Mm. They're there with you in your heart, your mind, every day of your life. So when people talk about your child, it makes you feel better because it makes you feel they haven't forgotten. Yes. And you want to be, you want to remember them. So those milestones for us are really important and I think they will be until our last breath. Mm, Exactly. I love sharing Lauren and her birthday. Her birthday is really important for me to share with her friends and being all together and, and Lauren's last birthday, her 19th, at the cemetery. We have a picnic and we bring a picnic blanket and sit around and sharing stories is really special. Um, we went out for dinner. We uh, went for a night swim down at the beach. Um, we all held hands and jumped into the water. It was really special. The anniversaries of the passing is tougher though. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. The birthday... I feel is just a, a celebration of life. I agree. Fun yeah. Day. Yeah. I want to thank both of you, Kerry, Ellie, for being so brave and strong and telling us these beautiful stories with the grief attached to it. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. No problems. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the second season of the Royal Children's Hospital podcast series, Life, Love and Loss, Caring for a Child Who is Dying. The Royal Children's Hospital, together with the Victorian Paediatric Palliative Care Program and Palliative Care Australia, would like to thank the parents who've generously taken part in this series. You can search all the episodes online at rch.org.au slash podcasts. I'm Lena Keneva. Thanks for listening. Listener.